0: My name is Sarah McBride, and I seek to understand human behavior in geohazards. That includes earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, and landslides.
1: Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, Sarah K. McBride discusses her paper, Evidence-Based Guidelines for Protective Actions in Earthquake Early Warning Systems In the January-February issue of Geophysics. In this engaging and helpful conversation, Sarah highlights the various protective actions people can take during an earthquake. She also shares who is most likely to be injured during an earthquake and how seismologists, earth scientists, and engineers can best protect and warn the populations they serve. This serves as an excellent reminder on how to stay safe during earthquakes, the latest research and warning people of danger, and a helpful path forward to continue to save lives during earthquakes. Visit seg.org/podcast for the complete show notes and to access the entire podcast archive. Now, my conversation with Sarah K. McBride. So we're we're here to talk about an article you published in Geophysics, and that title is "Evidence-Based Guidelines for Protective Actions and Earthquake Early Warning Systems." The kind of question that came to mind, just even looking over this paper, is why don't humans behave as scientists would prefer during an earthquake?
0: I think, first of all, that is an excellent question. The reason why people don't behave the way we would like them to has a lot to do with training and experience and knowledge. We really don't drill that often for earthquakes particularly when people are outside of the elementary and high school levels. And oftentimes people retain what they learned back in school. So let's say you're in your 40s or 50s and you might have learned to go into a doorway if you're in the United States. And that's not advice that we provide any longer. But people retain that memory of what happened and what they were taught back in school. the other thing that people do is they remember what they might have done during earthquakes. And it's been a while since we've had a large earthquake that has impacted a lot of people all at once in the United States, of course, that made them take protective action. With the exception of Ridgecrest in 2019, uh, with those two earthquakes back to back. It had been almost 20 years since we had experienced uh, large and intense shaking in earthquakes in the continental U.S. Of course, Alaska is a different story altogether.
1: So what would you say are some of these important considerations if, you know, these scientists are developing an early warning system in their area?
0: So what we what we really drilled it down to was three main overarching concepts. And one of them is social, cultural, and environmental context, that where people are present, what their social roles are with each other, and what type of buildings, what's the, what's the built environment around them when they're located when the earthquake happens. For instance, we have very different protective actions for, say, Haiti, which has a different built environment to, say, California, which has stronger and more robust building codes, and sometimes newer buildings as well. So we took into account that built environment, but we also took account on the social and cultural and environmental context too. What are people taught? What are they taught in schools? What are they taught in their workplaces? How do they approach culturally earthquakes? What are their relationships with the earthquakes? And what have they been inculturated in to do? Uh, so all of those things, that, and that's just number one. Then we have number two, which is what is the demographic and experiential variable? So gender and age and previous experience with earthquakes. Uh, we do know that gender and age do influence injuries. That's one thing that, and, and that's not just our finding, that is consistent across other analyses that are done on earthquake injury data that women uh, in certain countries, uh, say Atero in New Zealand, are more likely to be injured in earthquakes during earthquake shaking than, say, men. And the hypothesis there is that that's based on their social role and their caretaking of children, that they are going to prioritize the safety of their children before their own safety and, and well-being. Now, I want to make something really clear. This is not. I'm not trying to shade men here or shame men <laughs> into into how they caretake their children during earthquakes. That's not what I'm trying to do. This is just what the. Day data presents itself. And then the other thing with previous history with earthquakes, there is some studies that older people are less likely to take protective action because they've experienced earthquakes before and they may not have been a big deal. So they just go, okay, well, we felt this shaking before, so we're not going to take protective actions because it doesn't seem that serious to us. So experience has a lot to do with it as well. And that's pretty consistent uh, in the in the earthquake literature, but also in other other uh, disaster literatures as well, like hurricane literatures around when people choose to evacuate for a hurricane or not, that experience with previous uh, evacuations and hurricanes, then flavor the decision-making process of people when they choose to evacuate from a hurricane. So the final thing to consider is the magnitude intensity that influence the duration and impacts of the earthquake itself, and as well the system that it, it impacts. So you have to consider what kind of earthquakes that you're going to get when you build for earthquake early warning. Mexico City being one of the really famous case studies on this because the initial system was built out along the coast where a lot of the damaging earthquakes start, but that provide Mexico City two to three minutes worth of warning because Mexico City is further away from the coast. So they really built and considered their earthquake environment when building that earthquake early warning system back in the 90s.
1: It's amazing to me how only that third aspect there of of those three elements are really scientifically technical, but it, you know, takes a geoscientist and a scientist in general to be able to study this and understand it. But, you know, kind of building off that, what are some aspects that would make risk communication more effective in a community?
0: Well, I I think what's interesting here, too, is that this paper was written and developed largely by social scientists, not by physical scientists and engineers, although we did have one seismologist on the paper so to ensure that we had the technical details correct on the paper, which is obviously very important to us. So we really wanted to reframe it exactly from what you're talking about. How do we communicate these kinds of risks when it comes to earthquake early warning? And so a lot of what we found uh, in terms of protective actions and why people take protective actions or not is really around the building of procedural knowledge or drills. People will do, by and large, what they're trained to do when faced with an experience, provided that they have had enough trainings, frequently enough, in enough different environments to encourage them to do so, and that they're aware that when they receive a warning that they have also a nudge, if you will, to actually take that protective action. That's why in the Shake Alert message, uh, we include the words, drop, cover, and hold on, protect yourself now. And those, those phrases were all very specifically chosen to communicate what people should do when they receive these alerts. That's because people have very little time to take protective actions with ShakeAlert. It's, it's, it's seconds, not minutes, that they have. And so we really wanted to provide a very short nudge for, to remind people what the best protective action is. Understanding that drop, cover, and hold on doesn't just represent the drop, cover, and hold on, it represents a suite of protective actions that people can take. And there is a list of actions people can take with uh, differing abilities, as well as different environments that they can take to. And the protect yourself now is a reminder to go ahead to take that protective action immediately when they receive the message and not wait. People will often do what we call milling for information or social norming. Uh, have you ever been in a room, in a meeting room, where the fire alarm goes off? Yes. And what is the first thing that you tend to do?
1: See if it's a mistake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. or, or wait
1: for someone else to, to make a move, to take it seriously.
0: So Andrew, you do exactly the two things that are noticed by social scientists everywhere when it comes to protective action. What you do is you confirm that the alert is real and you look for other people to see what is appropriate protective action. So that's milling for information and confirmation and social norming. So you look, and that's why we have emergent norm theory, which is very much based on, in, in, in this paper, which is very much based on how groups Take protective actions. How they socially norm together to do to do something, right? So you did exactly what social scientists would expect you to do, Andrew, in in these kinds of events.
1: I, I'm glad I am a, a normal reactor. Yeah, I, I had a question earlier that was kind of answered there of, of what I did in a an earthquake in 2011 in DC when I went to Twitter to see if that was a real earthquake, and uh, so yeah, another way of expanding out to get uh, confirmation of what you experienced. But, you know, someone listening to this, okay, like they're, you know, let's say they're in the U.S. where the shake alert system is based and, the, and they can do that protective mechanism. But why, why do you think maybe this better awareness and knowledge of the risks of earthquakes won't lead to better protection?
0: Well, because we know that there's something called the knowledge behavior gap right? People know what to do, but oftentimes actually getting them to do those behaviors can be a real struggle. This is something we see a lot in the emergency preparedness literature. Most people know, hey, I have to store water in my house and I have to have, you know, food. I have to have some emergency supplies available, but they often fail to go ahead and do so. And that's because of the behavior component. And oftentimes it's not that people are stupid or unintelligent or uninformed it's that people are busy. They have other things to do. And oftentimes emergency preparedness and, and taking protective actions and drills are simply not on their list. They have a lot of other considerations in their lives. And earthquakes sometimes in the United States, not not always, but sometimes happen really rarely, and we're currently in that sort of rarish zone. Of course, we had the Ridgecrest earthquake, and we had the Magna Utah earthquake, and the Nevada earthquake in the last couple of years. But they're they're not necessarily everyday occurrences, and so people forget uh, until they're actually faced. With those kinds of earthquakes. Um, I personally lived in New Zealand. I I lived in New Zealand for 17 years before I repatriated back to the United States. And I experienced many, many, many large earthquakes, including the magnitude 7.8 Kaikoura earthquake in 2016, of which the shaking intensity was strong and lasted for about 90 seconds to two minutes. And I thought I was really well prepared. And that earthquake happened at midnight. And while I was sleeping, my husband had to wake me up and I was on call for Geonet, which is the USGS of New Zealand. And uh, I remember I did not do exactly the right things that I was told despite drilling because the event was so upsetting. And so like... To be clear, you know, we're not sitting here being the drop cover and hold on police, right? Like we understand that people are going to take the best protective actions that make sense for them at the time. The, the the drop cover, hold on protective actions, suite of protective actions, there is indications that they are, that this is really good to reduce injuries. But we also respect that people are going to do the best they can with the time that they've got in the situation that they're in.
1: How concerned are you about false alerts in an early warning system?
0: Well, false alerts do happen, uh, for sure. Uh, so we, we know they've happened. They've happened with shake alert. Um, that's been documented. It's happened, I think, twice now. Um, and we fixed the issues that caused the false alerts. What we're actually seeing from some of the preliminary data coming through is that it's less, people are less worried about the occasional false alert as they are missed alerts, where they feel shaking and they felt they should have gotten alert and they didn't get it and they felt the system let them down.
1: Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned a few contexts where people might take beneficial actions if I'm in a crowd and someone is trained and knows what to do, and, and I would follow them more likely. Are there some other contexts where people tend to take beneficial protective actions during an earthquake?
0: Well, one of the classic ones is schools. So if there's some fantastic footage from the Anchorage earthquake. There was a, a video recording of a classroom. And as soon as the shaking started getting even slightly intense, the teacher said to the classroom, you know, it's an earthquake, get down. And those students got down and everybody, including the teacher who was the last person to get under a desk, it took them four seconds to do that action. So uh, certainly with schools, it can happen very quickly. And you can see those, see students take protective action. And that footage is really phenomenal. We have, uh, I, I work on another project that analyzes human behavior in earthquakes that looks at video that's provided online. And what's really fascinating is watching how people are doing all these different protective actions in different areas. We have recorded people, uh, coming out in earthquakes in a porta potty, coming out of the <laughs> porta potty rapidly. And, and quite frankly, uh, I, I, I can't fault that decision making process. I, I'm not sure I'd want to be in a porta potty in the middle of an earthquake. <laughs> uh, and and they and they they stood in the middle of the parking lot where there was no structures that could fall on them. so we we have watched people uh, do different protective actions in all kinds of different environments. And again, you know, it's very environment and context specific. But fortunately the, the the drop cover and hold on suite of protective actions does provide a protective action for for a lot of these different environments, although they don't have a porta potty one. I may mean, need to talk to them about that and and see if they can see if they can update that that protective action.
1: Uh, I, I would be I'd love the directions there of how they would encourage them to finish up very rapidly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> very rapidly. Uh, That's right.
1: You know, I was a little shocked in your paper that you have a statistic that Americans spend ninety-three percent of their time indoors. So, so given that, there's a really strong chance of if an earthquake happened, you would be indoors. So, given that, you know, and this drop, cover, and hold on, could you provide just like some actual examples of someone's, you know, on their couch, if someone is is at a coffee shop, like what that would look like to, to take those protective measures.
0: Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, just try to get under under something strong as quickly as you can. Don't try to walk a lot. The, the key thing is you want to limit the amount of movement because, and if you've been in a strong earthquake like I have, uh, you know that the stronger the intensity, the harder it is to walk and the more likely it is to fall and that you're going to injure yourself. The other thing too is considering when it's at night, for instance, the power goes out, you can't see what's happening. You really don't want to be walking around, walking on broken glass, falling over something that is, you know, something that has fallen down like bookshelves, those kinds of things. So you really want the, 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 the critical part of drop, carbon and hold on this to really reduce the amount of movement you've got and protect your neck and head as soon as you can and get under something heavy and stable in case anything falls on top of you. Again, it, it really is the the most critical thing is about the limitation of your movement movement to reduce injury.
1: What is about the average length of time for someone to expect to be experiencing an earthquake?
0: So, I mean, earthquakes are really variable, right? You have some earthquakes that can cause a lot of damage that lasts like 10 seconds, uh, but they're really shallow and really close by. And even if they're a smaller magnitude earthquake, they can they can cause damage. Uh, or you can have like something where I experienced the magnitude 7.8, the Kaikoura earthquake that lasted a really long time. So, you know, I think the Great Alaska earthquake was somewhere between six to 10 minutes, right? So you can have these really, and these are magnitude nine pluses, right? These are these huge, huge earthquakes that have really, really long shaking durations. And then you can have these smaller, shallower earthquake, magnitude earthquakes can also cause a lot of damage. I think one of the classic cases that I worked on, I was the public information manager second in command for the Christchurch earthquake in February, 2011, and that was a magnitude 6.2 but it was very shallow. It was very close to the city and it really caused significant, significant amounts of damage to Christchurch. I think the shaking was between 15 and 20. It might've been 22 seconds, 20 seconds. It wasn't a really long shaking period, but it was very intense and the uh, the shaking intensity was extreme. So it's, it's hard to give like, what is an average length of an earthquake? Because it really depends on the magnitude and where you are in reference to that earthquake, right? And then, of course, the Modified Mercalli Index, which is around the intensity of the earthquake, too, has a lot to do with what your experience is.
1: After that shaking, the experience of shaking, your feeling stops. Is it safe at that point to start taking stock of what's around you and what's happening?
0: That's right. So after you feel the immediate shaking, that's the time to really think about what your next moves might be uh, really thinking, OK, should I turn off? Do I have gas? Should I turn off the gas? Are there injuries around me? Am I unsafe in this building? Is Should I evacuate the building if I'm unsafe in it? As long as the shaking has stopped, you know, those those are things to consider about your your environment around you uh, and and to do those things. The one thing you have to bear in mind is once you have a big earthquake, then you're going to have aftershocks. So whatever you do, (laughs) be aware that that might not be the end. Right. That that is that aftershocks are probably on their way um, and that you're going to have to take whatever action uh, fairly quickly.
1: What are some key questions that you still have for understanding what are the best protective actions to take?
0: Oh, man, we have so many questions about what the best protective action is to take. I, you know, I, I think that this very much represents a, a discussion in the literature, but it's not the end point for these discussions. Uh, I think for me, timing for drills uh, is a really good conversation that we need to have for how long um, it takes for people to really build procedural knowledge for drills. And there's some evidence that it could take, you know, two or three times a year versus a year. What we know is that there's kind of no necessarily sweet spot, but drill often. So people know what to do and what actions to take. The other one I would really love to take a look at is uh, how people engage and value and trust earthquake early warning systems to provide them these seconds of notice. So people's relationships with these earthquake early warning systems. We do have some. Studies coming out like uh, the Nakayashi study and the Becker study that came out in the last couple of years that do this. I'd love to see this kind of work replicated in the United States. There's still a lot of a lot of questions here to go, and and again, you know, it's always hard to recommend one protective action for so many different situations that people may find themselves in. And so what we really looked at was the majority of situations that people are in, the majority of buildings that people find themselves in. And again, that doesn't account for specific situations that may be slightly different. And again, I'm not the drop cover and hold on police. If people have done their research and they feel like taking a different protective action is going to help protect them more, I just don't want to see people die in earthquakes. Like that as a having having known people who died in Christchurch and having had that experience of watching a city I love be, be really um, damaged and having been in large earthquakes myself, I do this work because I want people to survive after earthquakes and be as healthy as possible after these events occur.
1: What's really nice about for earthquake protection, you know, it, it doesn't take much to drop, cover and hold. So those seconds could be enough. And you know, if it turns out that it isn't as big of an earthquake or whatever, like you just sit back up, you know, it's not, <laughs> not too much off you to, to take those protections. You know, you, you mentioned before we started recording how this was a, a fairly difficult paper to write. You know, you're talking about your personal experiences with earthquakes and losing people that you know and care about. And the nice thing about this paper as well is it's open access and and just in general, it's not a very technical paper for what you might think in geophysics in the sense that this is an understandable and, and readable paper. But what might someone kind of overlook or or just something you want to make sure people get from reading this paper, even if it's kind of a hard thing to get?
0: So really what I, I, I want, I want people to understand about this paper, particularly the technicians and the builders of these systems, is to really build systems with people in mind first as much as possible and really consider how you're going to frame easy, accessible and simple protective actions for as many people as possible. Again, drop, cover, and hold on doesn't suit everybody for every situation ever possible. That's not the point. The point is, is that it's there to do something that can minimize injury for the, for the vast majority of people and that it's easy to do and it's quick to do. There isn't one A perfect solution for everybody, for every earthquake, for every situation. This is advice that we hope that our technicians and scientists will listen to when they're constructing these kinds of systems. Because the other thing that I've noted is with earthquake early warning systems around the world, social scientists are not embedded in the development of these systems. And I I hate to call out my own agency, but I say this with love and affection uh, and hopefully not a career limiting moment uh, with the U.S. Geological Survey. But uh, they started developing the earthquake early warning system in 2006. Comprehensive and strategic social science. I, I became the social science coordinator for ShakeAlert for the first time. I was the first person to fulfill this role in 2019. So that's a, that's a pretty big gap. And we did have a few social scientists working here and there uh, on various projects, but not over this big comprehensive perspective. And so if we're going to build warning systems for people, then including social scientists in the development of these warning systems is really critical to get the messaging and protective actions to suit the most amount of people to do the maximum amount of good that these systems aim to do.
1: Well, Sarah, this has been a a lively and engaging conversation that hopefully will get people kind of excited to learn a little bit more about how to protect themselves during earthquakes and and the systems. I'm an economics major and, you know, behavioral economics has become a much bigger thing since I've left learning. So it's nice to see this aspect coming into other areas of science as well. And and just kind of lastly here, a more general question I want to ask you is what principle, teaching or point of view has helped you succeed in your field?
0: I mean, me personally is always centering people in the work. Whenever I approach this work, whenever I'm researching something, I think about where I started, which really is in Christchurch. Going through all the injury data was a very sobering and difficult thing to do, to really consider uh, the magnitude. And I hate to use that word (laughs) because it is the geoscience thing, but the magnitude and depth all the good that Earthquake Early Warning Systems can do, but really, really centering people in this work and including them in this work and, and thinking about why we're really doing this work that it's not for us. It's not for our egos. It's not for the publications. And don't get me wrong. I, I am human. I, I get wrapped up in exciting research as well, just like everybody else, but it's really centering the work on people. And that, that to me is what makes being kind of the only social scientist. I am the only social scientist at the earthquake science center uh, at the USGS uh, that makes that journey of, of being the only person like me in my organ in, in my science center. Worth it because someone has to be here to really remind the physical scientists that I firmly believe that all physical scientists and building engineers who came into this field came into it with the intention of helping people and with really good intentions of wanting to help people. And over time, you get into the science and you get into the details, and sometimes it's easy to forget that people are the reason why we do this work. And so when I was going through the earthquake injury data, it was very hard but it was a very sobering reminder of why we do this work why this work is important why earthquake early warning systems can save lives and how we can make them better not just through technical advancement but also through the understanding of humans and 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 of those around us so we can make better messages information and really optimize protective actions so that it does this these systems do the things we want it to do which is to help save lives and reduce injury
1: well that is a, a lovely place to leave it and a great thing for a scientist working to, to leave off as well to, to be thinking about in their work and be reminded. So thank you for putting this paper together and, and looking at those injury reports and, and being able to come out the other end with a wonderful paper.
0: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation Andrew. <laughs> it's been it's been out for almost um, six months and to be honest when it when it came out, I I have the sense of hope that this will get the physical scientists and engineers to really pause and, and remember who to center this work towards.
1: SEG produces Seismic off to benefit its members, the scientific community, and inform the public on the value of geophysics. To show your support for this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Simply go to Seismic Off on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on your phone. It takes less than five seconds to leave a five-star rating and is the number one action you can take to show your appreciation for this free resource. And follow the podcast while you are on the app to be notified when each new episode releases. Original music created by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG Podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Allie McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.